0: The following is a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management. Broadcasting live from the Santa Lucia Highlands, through the heart of the Casterville Artichoke Fields, westward to the Elkhorn Slough, and south to the rugged Big Sur coastline, you're listening to What's the Plan? A weekly discussion with local thought leaders about the future of Monterey County. And now, here's your host, Mr. Paul Wyant. All right, good afternoon, everyone. We have a great show for you today featuring Mr. Tim Thomas. He is a local historian in the Monterey area. If you want to contact him, he does monthly walking tours on Sundays. It's the first Sunday of the month, and you'll want to email him at timsardine at yahoo.com. Again, that's timsardine at yahoo.com. But before we get to Tim, let me remind you that I'm Paul Wyant, and I own Express Employment Professionals of Monterey County. And if you need staffing for your business, give me a call. 831-920-1230. 831-920-1230. Also want to remind you really quickly that our show is available at what's whatstheplanmonterey.com. So you can get that and listen to it streaming there, or you can go to iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play and search for What's Plan Monterey and listen to the show there. Thank you so much for your support. Okay, Mr. Thomas, welcome to the program. Thanks for coming on um, my first question is just: Can you tell us a little bit about your personal history and the county personal history in Monterey and how you became so knowledgeable? Well,
1: I uh, uh, am a fourth generation native of the Monterey area, so I grew up here, and uh, I uh, am a fisheries historian. I was the historian curator for the Old Monterey Maritime Museum for about sixteen years, written a couple of books about the Monterey waterfront. My focus has been on the last oh, thirty-five years of so on Monterey fishing history, and then for the last twenty-some odd years or so, I've been working mainly with the Japanese American Citizens League. Uh, that's where I am right now, in fact. And uh, we have a, a beautiful new little museum that we finally completed last year. And then the pandemic hit, and we weren't really able to open up to the public. Hope to, uh, within the next month, or so again, reopen the museum. Where, what's the location of It's on Adams Street, uh, right across from Jack's Ballpark there.
0: Oh, that's great, yeah. And what kind of items are in the museum that would, would people...
1: Well, the museum is a focus on the history of the Japanese in Monterey, but mainly that what brought the Japanese to Monterey was fishing and so it has a obviously a real focus on fishing history abalone in particular and uh, sardines and other oh that's
0: great uh so yeah I've, I've talked on the program before about uh the japanese coming in so the it started with italian immigrants coming in for sardine fishing is that correct well actually the chinese were here before them right is that right
1: yeah well the chinese uh, way back of course there were the native american Muncian people but they were really the first commercial fishermen in monterey uh but yes chinese japanese actually here before sicilian for the italian Guys. Japanese arriving in the mid 1890s um, mainly to fish abalone and salmon, and it was salmon that puts Monterey on the map, not sardine. Salmon was king, and it was a big fishery in Monterey uh, up between uh, 1895 to about ni- about uh, 1915 or so. And then once World War One started, then the sardine fishery began to really develop in Monterey. That's,
0: that's fantastic. Yeah, I think when did Sicily was actually part of France, wasn't it back in the 1800s? So maybe Sorry. it wasn't. Sic- Part of France back in the 1800s, or so, I'm at some not point. Not aware
1: about that, but I know that Sicily, in about 1938, actually uh, petitioned the United States to become part of the United States.
0: Oh, that's that's pretty cool. Actually, that would make sense because I think uh, there was a lot of uh, they they loved America right around the World War II. That's yeah, right. That's interesting. So, can you talk a little bit about um, yeah, just some of the how how fishing has evolved and the, and the what what fishes have been popular over, over the times? Maybe the 1800 to now, and and how have uh, the fish populations changed? Like maybe some have been overfished. And that, that's
1: so really, as I mentioned, uh, abalone was what brought Japanese or brought Chinese fishermen here initially as well uh, in the mid 1800s. Uh, it was actually referred to in the, in the San Francisco newspapers as the abalone rush uh, that brought a lot of Chinese fishermen to Monterey. But they weren't divers; uh, they were what they could get off the rocks. That's how they did it. Uh, and with Japanese fishermen arriving here. Uh, in the, as I mentioned, the 1890s Actually, a guy by the name of Otto Savirunoda, who, uh, who uh, immigrated to from Japan to the United States in the 1880s and ended up in Watsonville uh, and then got a job working for the Spreckle Sugar Plant uh, in uh, about 1890. And uh, a few years later, he came to Monterey working for the land arm of the Southern Pacific Railroad called the Pacific Improvement Company. At that point, Southern Pacific owned about 8,000 acres of the Monterey Peninsula. They had this kind of weird idea they could turn Monterey into tourist paradise. And so... Noda was hired uh, to work for them to sort of a labor contractor and he was also a gatherer of wood for work camp and he and a partner were up on a tree one day over near the Monterey Wharf and just noticed huge abundance of abalone like so much abalone he actually described it in the letter as being a carpet of abalone and nobody is doing anything with it and of course the reason nobody is doing anything with it because nobody do I mean what the heck are you supposed to do with it unless you're preparing abalone properly it is kind of like eating a rubber boot Japanese who began doing abalone for centuries. It knew exactly what it is. So Noda writes a letter back to the government of Japan and said, hey, all this abalone here, nobody wants it. And the government of Japan sends a guy by the name of Janosuke Kadani, who was in the abalone business in the Chiba Prefect of Japan. She comes over and goes, oh, this is great. In between that time, Noda uh, goes down to what was then Ocean View Avenue and leases a, now Cannery Row, right? Leases a small piece property down there. If you know Cannery Row, that big empty lot that's across next to the altar El- Rito restaurant with supposedly this marketplace thing Mm -hmm. he leased that piece of property and sent for other Japanese fishermen to come to Monterey and and created a fishing column that site in 1902 we actually built the very first cannery on cannery row was on that site was a Japanese owned cannery Monterey fishing canning company Um, but uh, uh, Kodani's sent for divers what were known as Ama or free divers Uh, they came over and we I believe went down to Noda's camp and, and got dressed that first morning and went into the Monterey Bay began to dive for abalone uh, dressed in traditional on the gear which was just a little white cotton outfit you know and a pair of goggles you know monterey bay is not known for its warmth no <laughs> it about 15 degree water temperature difference between monterey and japan which is a huge huge difference yeah. and so, so although we make light of it there were on the divers in monterey into the 1920s but they at that point sent for helmet divers it was far more efficient the helmet gear and that's why they really started to do it with helmet diving
0: that that's fantastic do you have some of those that some of that gear in in some of the museums
1: uh i do i have some helmet gear and armor gear both here at our at our heritage museum that's fantastic
0: well getting back to the history of sicily not that it was totally off subject but it was 1860s when i think it switched from it was actually the Bourbons. uh okay. they're like spanish and french but yeah it was uh Makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I have to ask you, so like Fisherman's Wharf, can you talk a little bit too about the history of the actual pier? And yeah, maybe even the Coast Guard pier and all those piers. And how did those look over time as we've shifted from a fishing to a
1: uh, tourism? Well, there's been many different wharves and piers here in Monterey. The wharf we think of, but the tourist wharf to think of today, uh, was actually the original wharf was built in 1845, built by Thomas Larkin. He was under contract by the Mexican government to build that. That little wharf. What it was was actually sort of a kind of a crib work setup with just rocks and whatnot. And they built it primarily because, uh Larkin really wanted to put it in because he was a merchant and they were concerned about losing cargo, which was pretty common. He actually said he was tired of people getting their feet wet when they got, you know, coming into Monterey. Uh, and, and but in those days, before there was any kind of pier or wharf system, uh, they would unload your cargo from ship. They were usually packed in barrels, whatever cargo was, and use Monterey to bring everything, had to buy or by ship would be loaded onto a longboat and then brought on being. It was not uncommon uh, for those barrels to get dropped to the bay, into the harbor. Yeah. Now, the nice thing about being in the barrel, they'll usually float. Yeah, they'll oftentimes yeah. will lose cargo. So you actually, to this day, you can still walk along that little beach that's uh, to the left of the Monterey War at low tide, and you still, today, find little pieces of China, ceramic pieces from the ships losing cargo. Lark had built that little war uh, then in 1870, the uh, Pacific Steamship Company, which then was one of the world's largest transportation companies. Uh, uh, they were huge. Uh, they built uh, a wooden wharf uh, and they operated that until uh, about 1910 uh, when the city Monterey, There was some kind of rift between the city and the city company and the city took it over and the city to this day owns that wharf. That's, <laughs> yeah,
0: and, it's, and so a lot of the facilities that you see on the wharf were those originally used as the wharf, like, small warehouses for a longshoreman and whatnot.
1: But the wharf it has an interesting history because it started out as a transportation wharf of company. Then when the Hotel Del Monte opened in 1880, it built the little wooden boardwalk that stretched from the hotel all along the, all along the waterfront directly to the wharf. And it became a real tourist-oriented wharf. And they had glass-bottom boat rides, sailboat rides, deep-sea fishing. They also had on the beach, again, adjacent to the wharf there. Then when there was a big beach there, because there wasn't... Out the Southern Pacific came in in 1886 and built their line, uh, Monterey and Pacific Grove. They blasted all that out. Right? But there was a large beach there and they had beach pavilions for their guests and whatnot. And it was a real tourist-oriented kind of thing. And then as the Monterey starting fishery begins to really develop after 9 10, uh, uh it becomes a real working man's war. Yeah, and after the fishery collapses, it reverts back to what it initially was, back to that tourist. But also the one thing, and this is important, that most people don't know, is that prior to World War II, 80% of business on the Monterey were, were Japanese-owned. There were fish markets and abalone processors.
0: Oh. Were those, were those uh, just pretty- cured or expropriated uh, when the internment happened? Some of them were for sure, yeah. Mm, that's that's too bad. The uh, I was going to notice the marketplace that you were talking about next to El Torito right. uh, on uh, near Canary Row. I, I've i always thought that would be a perfect place to put a Ferris wheel and, and you know? because it wouldn't take any water and it would be perfect. It would, I don't know if the <laughs> Coastal Commission would have anything to say about that. <laughs> uh, I, I have to ask you, Tim, uh, about the railroad then. So the railroad used to stretch all the way down past Pacific Grove and now it's the Recreation Trail. Right. How did how did the end of the railroad come? Was it when the collapse of the fisheries and, and the canneries and stuff? Is that would, is that how the railroad ended up meeting its demise?
1: Well, the railroad, I mean, first of all, Southern Pacific built uh, that little uh, line from Monterey to Pacific Grove, not for tourism. They built that because they had a sand plant down there with Sanish Bay Golf Courses. Oh, uh, okay. And, and they would you know, get their sand, right? That's why it was there. Um, and they operated that, I believe, into the 1970s, I would say, that sand plant. In fact, what most people don't realize in the 1960s uh if you were in hawaii sitting on the beaches in waikiki you bet you were sitting on sand from monterey oh really <laughs> so, yeah.
0: they transported some sand from monterey to waikiki beach in hawaii. Yeah,
1: wow. they did. They, and they had a big turntable for the train to turn it around uh across from lovers point where there's a, a mobile home park there now but there used to be a that was the train station was there and they had a big round roundhouse there that would turn the train around so when the train got to the sand plant it had to go it had to back up all way back there and turn around and do that. So what happened to the railroad, of course, like anything, uh, I mean, it actually operated Southern uh, Pacific until the early 70s, but they stopped running it because just people didn't ride the train anymore. I mean, it wasn't financially feasible, and that's why they stopped. So the train and the fishing industry, uh, yes, they worked hand in hand, but it, but it wasn't designed that way. So it just happened to be when the sardine fishery was really gone, and, and in the, the sardine world, the canners would be on the water side and the warehouses would be on the opposite side along that trail there, so it just happened to be on the on the rail line, so the train could come through once a week and pick up those cases, or once a day and pick up those case studies. So that was a nice little bonus. Ah, okay, that
0: well, that's interesting. And what were you? Uh, were, do you know anything about the the, the cities transforming that into what is now this uh, the record?
1: Yeah, well, I believe it was in 1985 when they opened that wreck Trail. One of the first. There's a number of those kind of things across the country now. Uh, the walking wreck
0: Trail. Both rails. Tim in uh, New York City, the High Line. Is, uh, yeah, they got cool you exactly.
1: An urban railway, but yes, yeah. but I think Monterey. This was one of the first ones, and uh, I'm it was a number of a number of people that were involved in putting that together. I know that that did it together, I, but uh, it's a wonderful thing. I use it almost every day, so I, I like it. <laughs> So, and so people are you know, Chinese laborers have built all that, so we got Chinese folks to thank for that nice trail <laughs> <laughs> that built the
0: railway initially. The yeah. Railway, yeah, yeah. Can you, can you talk about okay? So, now you're a historian, and there's talk that they may get rid of the uh, the Pacific Grove has, of course, the annual festival of, of right. the Festival of Lanterns there at Lover's Point. And there's talk that they may want to get that away, uh, get, get a move away from that because of cultural sensitivity. Can you talk about the like development of that festival or, or what do you know about that?
1: Well, I know a little bit. I mean, I know it, the festival itself was created in the 19th century when Pacific Grove was, uh, was a part of the, of the Methodist retreat and the people would come and spend the summer there. They actually used to think it was good for your health to sleep out in the fog uh, and uh, they would come at, at the end of their festival uh, or into the summer months they would hold a big festival uh, and in, in the 19th century at that time it was pretty Japanese lanterns were very common and very popular uh, and they, people would hang Japanese lanterns in their, around their house uh, also at that same time they were seeing mostly Japanese fishermen out in the bay and, and also Chinese squid fish with, and Chinese squid were seeing, of course burning their pitch fires, so that became part of it as well and so they would hold this festival and they began to incorporate the boat so I know that one of the very first festivals they actually hired a number of of modern Japanese fishermen to wind their boats up with Japanese lanterns sail by as they're having that festival and the whole Queen Topaz Topaz thing actually I know came part of the festival after uh, after World War II Uh, it was whole written out of whole cloth I think it just kind of made up Right, there's no real reality to it Um, it's kind of a funny thing it's sort of a hometown kind of thing I wish they'd go back to what it was like in the 1920s and 30s they usually used to have a queen of the festival and she wasn't any Kind of uh, ethnic thing involved in it, and they actually had and an a guy named Eddie Bushnell, who was a helmet diver, would come out of the water off the beach and crown the queen. And it's like, that was a lot more fun, I think. That would, that would
0: actually be pretty fun to have a diver come out of the water and, and crown the queen. Yeah, that uh, that, how about um, one thing I was gonna I, this may be a little out of your uh, out of your expertise, but you may know about Ricketts Lab and uh, Ed Ricketts, the uh, the famous biologist who friends John Steinbeck that now famously uh, JC the Aquarium Associate Lab. <laughs> Do you know uh, what? what kind of
1: developments came out of it? Well, a lot of things came out. Rick is is an interesting guy. I mean, he was a brilliant, brilliant guy, but he was essentially a self-taught biologist. I mean, he'd go to college for like one year and that one year he went to college, took a class, something that was kind of radical called uh, ecology. (laughs) And uh, after that year of college, he got married and had a couple of kids and uh, I believe in 97, packed up family, packed up college roommate, a guy named A.E. Gallagher, and they moved west, moved here to Monterey, which was unusual because most of those kind of biologists were going east coast he came west and I think because he learned a lot about this when he was in college and in school and um, he opened his lab initially in Pacific Grove and they were in the business of collecting marine specimens along the Asilomar uh, they would collect uh, frogs and turtles and snakes from the Carmel Valley uh, they had kids they'd hire kids to go around the neighborhoods collecting cats and they give the kids 25 cents for each cat they brought in which they would put in formaldehyde and then they were selling those things for uh, Colleges and high schools for a biology class for dissection. That was the business he was in. Oh, and then, was
0: dissect house cats. Okay. Yeah, that's what okay. he
1: did. And then in 1927, he uh, went down to Cannery Row and, and moved into that property where he is now, where, where the lab is now. It, and before that, it was the Rodriguez family owned that property then, and it was a small little cannery. They were canning, they were actually salting sardines. So he bought that property because of the location of it. But he really bought that property because in the back, there are those neighborhood walked along that Rockway, you can see but the big cement um, concrete uh, containers back there they uh, that are there where he kept his specimens but those are they were already there when you got that property because the the rodriguez family filled things up salt salt sardines that's ah and he used
0: them to keep like shark and things like that he was using that's fantastic and you know what's what's interesting and i don't know if you can comment on this is the um the long-standing like you mentioned the del monte or you can talk about pebble beach and there this has been a kind of a playground for the well-heeled for, for almost, you know, 150 years or more. It's also been a great place for industry, a great place for tourism, and and also a great fl- a place for uh, bio- biologists to work. Uh, how is that? How is the tension between those? Because they all have competing interests, you'll, you know, uh, of course.
1: I don't know about tension per se, but as you said, tourism was always sort of driven the machine, right, Monterey? Uh, hotel Del Monte opened in 1880. That was where it began. Mm-hmm. And the Hotel Del Monte was uh, really what they called a winter hotel and they market the hotel to rich folks that lived in Boston, Philadelphia, and New York. You know, hey, get out those cold winners. Come to Monterey. Spend a couple of months here at the Hotel Almonte, which people would do. You know, now you got them at the hotel, and well, you got to have stuff for them to do. So they created uh, the 17-mile drive, which, of course, is never 17 miles. Uh, they created uh, all kinds of different games and beautiful gardens, and they had sport fishing in the Monterey Bay. And it was actually a uh, sport fisherman staying at the Hotel Almonte that honestly created the Monterey fishing industry in a lot of ways so in those days the uh, in the 19th century uh, uh, most of monterey's commercial fishermen uh, all fish pretty much the same way with gill nets which is a net you stretch across your boat fishermen and they get caught by the gills which is pretty good for most things but it isn't always the most effective way to catch everything and and particularly salmon although you do catch salmon with gill nets but it, it, there was better ways to do it well these sport fishermen were very sophisticated fishermen uh, for their time and they, they were wealthy so they had the newest in toys, and they were fishing salmon. And the Monterey commercial fishermen would, no pun intended, hook themselves up with these sport fish, and they would take them out on the bay and show them the good places to fish for salmon. They were fishing guides, mm-hmm. right? And that, and these sport fishermen were fishing salmon in the bay with a rod and reel, uh, which was the first time that's ever happened until in the not till the ni- 1890s. And they were also fishing salmon with a trolling line, which is a line with a lot of hooks on it, dragged through the bay, which is a really effective way to catch salmon. So our Monterey commercial fishermen said, well, wait, man, we can do that. And I have salmon landing record, and You can see it. that In 1893, they caught maybe 5,000 pounds of salmon, and they switched this new trolling technology. In 1895, they catch 95,000 pounds with salmon bay. Wow. It's the attention of a guy named Frank Booth, who was in the business up along the Sacramento River. And he comes down to Monterey, goes, oh, man, this is great. Tried to get contracts from these now arriving Japanese fishermen, and they said, no, we got good contracts. Contracts with Markets in San Francisco, so he backs off and builds a little shed right near the monterey water. In between that time, the city of Monterey leases that piece of property right next to the wharf to a guy named H.R. Robbins. And I've seen Mr. Robbins' lease. It says on his lease for the purposes of sardine cannery, reduction plant, dance hall. <laughs> Need okay. to say Mr. Robbins was not the greatest businessman. And Booth actually bought him out on 93, got the contracts, the Japanese fisherman began to can salmon as his main fishery he began to experiment with these large sardine that are appearing in the monterey bay at the end of the salmon season uh sardine uh, salmon was king salmon was a big fishery and to give you an idea of how large it was at the end of the 1909 salmon which then lasted three months may 15th to august the monterey daily cypress was a local newspaper that reported at the end of that season 185 salmon boats came to monterey bay 145 of them were japanese owned catching an average of a million pounds of king salmon three months wow a that's amazing
0: so what so now let's juxtapose that with what currently exists in the bay like if, if you had that if you had 180 fishing boats out there what kind of a yield could they get nowadays well they're
1: not going to get that kind of salmon anymore that's for sure they don't run in the bay like that anymore that has had since probably 20s and 30s they don't do that and that's partly because of agricultural because you know, all that salmon was on its way up to the san martin delta yeah mm-hmm. uh, that's where they were going right and uh, once they started diverting Although the little river would not go into the agricultural field and change things, uh, so today the number one fishery in California, really uh, economically anyway, is squid, and they're is squid, I believe, right now.
0: Which way would they go up to San Juan Creek? that wouldn't be through the Carmel River? It Would be through the the Moss. Correct.
1: These are go- These guys are coming across through the bay. Right? They're on their way up that way. So salmon. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna return to where they were hatched, and uh, but then they go out and for like three years, they're gone out in the oceans. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, that that is.
0: Uh, <laughs> That is fantastic. So now I, I saw an article maybe about a year ago about a fisherman in, in Monterey that had uh, he'd hooked a a, uh, a GoPro, a little camera up to his trawling net, oh. something that he thought was gold from uh, like a sunken Spanish vessel uh, oh, yeah. or something like that. What what would you say if you could if you had magical powers and you could scour the base of Monterey Bay, what what, what are some of the uh, interesting things you might find? Well,
1: Monterey Bay, uh, interesting, of course, the shoreline has changed over the years. <clears throat> you know, it used to be much bigger and and then uh, so, West actually the big midden sites for Remsen you know, Native people are underwater today, and because of that, and who knows what kind of treasures. In fact, I walked along that beach again, the one adjacent to the Wharf, and one time found a beautiful arrowhead, um, obsidian arrowhead that came up one of those mid sites. So, but there are a number of shipwrecks in the bay, a lot of anchors out there in the bay because ships would cut their anchors in rather than get pulled in the beach mm,
0: Yeah, is there anything in the historical records about ships sinking out there? Oh, sure, lots. Yeah, yeah, the, the, well, the, that guy from uh, what was an Argentine when Monterey was like under Argentinian rule for like a week or something like that was he there
1: was any was a uh, French privateer right yeah yeah maybe I who
0: knows maybe there's stuff down there from that era it would be kind of interesting to know well,
1: I'm sure there probably there's a number of things out there uh, the one that I was working on an exhibit last year before the pandemic hit uh, on a guy named uh, uh, La Pousse La Pauce was a French uh, explorer and it is in Monterey and, in 1786 and took a number of things they collected. Number of things. Then, then they were going to go back to France, but they never made it back to France. They went to Monterey uh, all the way to China. Then were along Asia, and the ships wrecked off coast near Australia. And, I, I, and uh, I was in France a number of years ago, about ten years ago, and I went to the big maritime there, and which La Perouse at one time actually was the original director of. And I was able to get a big, beautiful coffee table book uh, about an ex- exhibit that they had done on La Perouse at that museum, and it was really about the because they've been diving on the wreck of his shipwrecks for since the 1950s. And there's a photograph in one of those books uh, of a diver coming up off the wreck. This was taken in the 1990s. And in his hand is a big red abalone shell. Uh. I mean, only place that Abilene shell is coming from is Monterey. So I know where we collected that shell. So I was able to contact. Uh, there's a museum on that part of the world that has all those artifacts, and we were able to. We were going to bring them back to Monterey for an exhibit, and then the pandemic hit. and we So hopefully we'll able to do that.
0: So long-time residents, if you were, uh, what 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 might they not be aware of? Like what what interesting fact from Monterey? Uh, the you know the fisheries and and the waterfront. What kind of an interesting fact would most not people not be aware of? Or were you most maybe? Uh, well, I
1: think that a of a lot of things but I think people look at the Monterey fishing history they all think about sardines uh, and yes Monterey was poor. sardine. Monterey sardines fishery was the largest fishery of single fish, fish in the United States took an average of a million or they, they took a lot of sardines like 235,000 tons of sardines every year out of that bay you know but uh, but how did they get as I mentioned all that salmon being caught you know how did we go from a million pounds in 1910 they caught 2 million pounds how do they go from all that salmon to that, sa- that sardine becoming the largest fish single fish in the United States, right well All that salmon, about 90% of it, going to Europe, going mainly to Germany. All the sardines people were eating in this country then, and actually at that time, at the turn of the 20th century, people in the United States ate a lot of sardines. It was pretty popular. People ate them on a daily basis, actually. But the sardines they were eating were were not the ones coming from here. They were the ones coming from the East Coast, from the North Atlantic. So sardine really is kind of a generic word for small silvery fish. There were different kinds of sardines, and and people like those little guys, you know, that are the ones, that's what they want. Wanted. And so what happened in the world in 1914, those are all coming mainly from France in those days, right? World War I, right? Because of all that salmon going to Europe, all those sardines coming from Europe, and they just quit. I mean, they had heavily fish sardine along the West Coast. And there were sardine cannons in New York State and Maine. Those guys couldn't fish because there were German submarines out there. You know, that's how Monterey sardine industry began to develop. And you then go back to your question about sort of tension between the tourist industry, there was a big push from the Hotel Almonte about the Monterey sardine. Industry being, being developed. They were concerned because they, began, they drew up blueprint, plans to build sardine canneries all the way along the Monterey waterfront, starting about where Wharf Number Two is today. That's what they wanted to start building these canneries. And the Hotel Almonte said, no, no, no. You build sardine canneries along the waterfront, tourists aren't going to come to Monterey. And so they had a lot of economic power here in Monterey at that time. And uh, they actually had a petition going around to stop this whole thing from happening. The city of Monterey said, wait a minute, there's money to be made here. So they said, all you sardine processing." can go way down there at the end of Ocean View Avenue. Nobody go. And that's how Cannery Row becomes Cannery Row. And the one cannery, Mr. Booth Cannery, which was right next to the Monterey Wharf, could stay there because it was already there. So he really was the only cannery that was in Monterey proper, Booth Sardine Cannery, that was there. But so so that's really an important thing. And uh, But also people don't seem to don't realize too is that the Monterey Sardine was never, any time in its history, a popular fish. To eat. People didn't like it. It was too big and too oily. The real money was never, ever in the Cannery. product the real money was always in the byproduct they took the heads tail awful the heads and guts and all that kind of stuff and grinding up other products animal feed fertilizer that so next time you go to the market and you buy a chicken for dinner you can thank the monterey sardine for that chicken for 1920, the chicken industry in California wasn't doing very well. People do not eat chicken like we do today. Then, kind of expensive, began to produce this cheap chicken. The, uh, the head, tails, and ovals, the Monterey sardine chickens loved it. Uh, more and more chickens are being produced. The price of chicken went down. People began to buy chicken. My friend Bill Ripley, who's a retired biologist, used to say that foster farm chicken owes its life. Boom, to the Monterey sardine.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that the chickens need food and, and make delicious food. Yeah, yeah the, the canneries also have really great architecture. What, so when we were refer- but yeah, so when they repurpose it to all these things, hotels and all this stuff, it's kind of it's really great to walk through. Um, yeah, you are you are a
1: wealth of knowledge, Tim. Have you written a book that you can plug? I have a couple books. I wrote a book uh, about uh, pauperness, adultery, the Abalone King of Monterey. It's really about the Japanese abalone fishery and pauperness and how the guys worked hand hand. And I have a book on the Monterey waterfront and also a book on the Japanese on the Monterey. Uh,
0: those are great, and they they're all for sale on Amazon, probably. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Just look for Tim Thomas and yep. Maybe- Sardine. Tim Thomas sardine or Tim Thomas uh, Japanese history. Yeah, that is, uh, Do you, are the fish coming back? Do you think uh, the modern uh, environmental laws, maybe not the salmon, but do you think some of them are coming back? Are you hearing that?
1: Sure, I've talked to biologists who say that the Monterey sardine fishery will, not the fishery, but the sardines will come back in big numbers like they were here in, in 1938. So you could walk across the bay on their back. They say they will eventually reach those numbers again too, as long as things stay. But yeah.
0: That would be great because right now you can walk across the bay on jellyfish. That's there you go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh well thank you so much Tim for taking yeah. the time. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. My uh, do you have a website? I should ask
1: I don't me? have a website.
0: What's a website to... that you would point people to? Maybe the uh Yeah, go- I I
1: you know I give walking tours of the Mari Wharf once a month, you know, and I you know, they can email me if they're interested in that kind of thing and uh what's
0: your email then for that?
1: It's just Tim Sardine at Yahoo.com. Tim Sardine at
0: Yahoo.com and where do you, they meet up for that walking tour? Is it you like
1: of- it's always the first Sunday of the month and we meet up uh, in front of the Harbor House until O'clock. At 10 o'clock. Yeah, but we have to make a reservation, otherwise, I won't be down. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so,
0: ten, <laughs> 10 o'clock in front of the Harbor House, uh, the first <laughs> Sunday of the month. Um, is that this Sunday? That would be this Sunday. All All right. Right. Uh, uh, no, Sunday. no, it was last Sunday. Okay, well, anyway, it was great to have you, Tim. And uh, yeah, come back again. I'd love to hear more about monetary history. I probably asked you a lot of questions, but there's so much more to learn. Thank you. I appreciate it. Okay, well, that will do it for this week's program. I'd like to thank Mr. Tim Thomas, uh, local historian. Historian, You can reach him at timsardine at yahoo.com. I'd also like to thank Mr. Mark Carbonero. He's the greatest producer in the business right over there. And Mr. David Marzetti. He's the host of the Saturday morning Shagbag radio show right here on 1460 AM and 101.1 FM. I'm Paul Wyan, owner of Express Employment Professionals in Monterey County. If you know someone looking for a job or if you happen to be a business owner looking for great staff, give me a call today, 831-920-1230. Thanks again for listening. To our program, you can find it on what's the plan monterey.com Please stay tuned for Business Sense Radio with Mr. Edward King up next. The preceding was a paid commercial program, and the views expressed are those of the speaker and do not reflect the views or opinions of iHeartRadio, its staff, or management.